You know what I did, Siko, this morning? Tell me all about it. Yeah, I actually poured uh, wine in my smoothie instead of grape juice because the bottles were very similar. So <laughs> it's going to be very jolly <laughs> podcast. It's going to be a jolly morning. <laughs> okay, so welcome to this episode of The Road to Open Science, your guide to everything on open science at Utrecht University and beyond. My name is Sandy Fires. And my name is Sikor de Knecht, and today we'll be talking about where the distinction lies between being a researcher officially and unofficially, and how there's so much more collaboration going on at universities and outside than we actually give people credit for. Oh, fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. But maybe before that, we gotta have a look at the news. What's the going news. on? What's going on, Sika? Well, straight straight on this actual topic, uh, I would like to tell our audience that in June, June 2nd and June 8th, uh, the uh, Recognition and Rewards Working Group will be organizing working sessions on a topic very similar to the topic of today's podcast, which basically is the distinction between support and academic staff. Uh, a really strange, uh, almost typically Dutch distinction, at least uh, in formal sense, and a distinction that's uh, be, uh, becoming harder and harder to defend by the day because there's so much more people working together at universities. So we're organizing a working session that's open for everybody at Duke Tech University. We already have a hundred people participating, uh, but a lot of them are officially support staff. So I'd like to see a little more uh, scientific slash academic staff there. And what we're going to be discussing is where the gap between support and the academic staff starts, where it comes from and how we can bridge the gap. Yeah. So with this, if you are a scientist at Duke Tech University, Join this session, find the link in the show notes, and just let your voice be heard. So, Sandy, what caught your attention over the last month? Oh, wow, a lot of things. But one of the uh, interesting and funny things were the, the cartoon of Randall Monroe, the, uh, the man, uh, the genius behind the XKCD uh, comics. <laughs> so he put uh, a meme on Twitter or... It was uh, really a sensation on Twitter about 12 types of scientific output. Yeah. And you know, it took a life of its own. It was wonderful. Yeah, the, the, the Randall Monroe, man, this, the, the, he is a genius. I have his book, What If? It's uh, actually uh, uh, in my toilet, uh, which causes me to sit on the toilet much longer than I usually need to. And then people think I'm doing other stuff than just peeing. But it's just a very fun book to read. He, he asks these hypothetic weird questions and then tries to answer them in a very scientific way. But he, he, is a, he is a Twitter sensation. And these 12 different types of articles he described, they were so incredibly spot on. Can you name one or two of them? Yeah, I finally managed to prove my colleague is wrong. It's yeah, that's a good the, one. Yeah. So, But it also <laughs> sort of became a source of a lot of other memes of other scientists. So every discipline had their own jokes added to it. And it even made it to the Atlantic. So there is a, a, an article in the Atlantic, a column, which is called Scientific Publishing is a Joke, <laughs> 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 which actually says that this has become a problem, that we have a lot of uh, you know, mundane articles that everybody yeah. knows it's happening. It's also exploding in terms of number of publications. So I think there is some indication that people have this feeling that we do need to have other forms of output and not just to package everything into PDFs, black and white, with the Titan and abstract, because not everything fits into that. But we are somehow put into this frame that if you really want your voice to be heard or your output to be counted, 
you have to put it as a PDF and publish it somewhere yeah. and pay a fee, etc., etc. Uh, to, to me, the, the funniest was uh, because I, I've been part of the butt of this joke a couple of times in, during my bachelor's, was we, sc- we scanned some undergraduates, which is like the, <laughs> the, the typical psychology paper where we have the same exact group of people we put in scanners like a thousand times, and then we make them think about sex, and then that's a paper. It's like, no, that's not a paper, man. That's not yeah. even a research question. Yeah, and but that also shows, and this is the conclusion of this uh, column in the uh, Atlantic, that even sometimes a meme on Twitter can unite scientists to discuss something very serious. Uh, for example, in this case, on scientific ethic or science policy. So it is. There yeah, are many the, forms of output out there. Yeah, we really invite you to to look over Twitter for all the uh, new versions that were made of this. So maybe something a little bit more serious than uh, Sunli. Uh, lately, I've been uh, discussing with a number of people also in communication, but also with scientists, uh, on how to deal with preprints. You remember that last year, especially during the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there were a lot of people wanting to put their uh, material out as fast as possible. Uh, and sometimes that went well, and sometimes it went a little less well. And uh, it has brought about the question, like, how do we treat a preprint? And um, I think... In general, we should uh, consider that peer-reviewed papers uh, don't necessarily guarantee that what's in them uh, is the truth. But of course, preprints have a little niche of their own. They're, uh, in this sense, very important for scientists to get uh, to get people to respond to them. And actually, the discussions on preprints sometimes are so much more enlightening than the paper themselves. But I found this paper by the Royal Society, and uh, they were actually went out in the fields and asked, what do pe- what do scientists themselves think about re- preprints? Do they think it's a positive or negative de- development, and do they use it, etc.? And this is like a huge study with thousands of respondents. And what I found very uplifting about it is that it's uh, it's taking uh, it's taking up and uh, in every field, and of course there are slight differences between disciplines, but a lot of, uh, uh, it's like the general population of scientists is really looking forward to a preprint future, which would mean great things for open access, of course, but also for collaboration and interaction within uh, the scientific community. So I'll put them in the show notes. I think it's nice for maybe you just check your own discipline and maybe discuss this in your department. It was very uplifting. Was there a conclusion that you didn't expect from the paper research? Well, I, I sort of expected that people would think that preprints aren't reliable because they're just preprints and not peer-reviewed, but then it, that really did, that wasn't a conclusion. That preprints are reliable as well, but they're just a different being than papers. Yeah, and I think there were also this pre-screening of the preprint at the, the peak of the you know, discoveries about the yeah. COVID-19. And that actually, I think, helped a lot of medical decisions. Uh, is pre-screening. Yeah, they did. And another update from my side, uh, we submitted uh, our first Open Science Fund grant to NWO. Uh-huh. This is a new scheme. And now I can tell you about it because these grants will be all openly available. So everybody will know what we have submitted. No. Why would you do that suddenly? Yeah, I always ask, you know, we have maybe four or five times rejected grants than accepted grants. And what happens with all the science in these grants? You know, all the ideas, they just go away. Some people uh, reuse those ideas, but in many cases, all the best ideas, the excellent ideas are just lost. And I'm really happy. Welcome Trust has previously done also an open round of grant applications with making all the grants open. 
I'm very happy that Envo is experimenting with this. Yeah, so we, we can find your grant application open for everybody under interwebs. I haven't checked, I think, but when the process is somehow complete, they are going to actually, they have asked us to allow them to uh, publish all the, all the grant applications independent of the outcome. So we have our grant on Fair Battery, that is an open source battery that people hopefully can build in their homes and scale up very quickly. So I'm very Whoa. excited about it. Isn't that dangerous? Well, we are going to make it not dangerous. Ah, that's, uh, that's great. I really love you doing that. Yeah. It sort of connects all my sort of skills or also exciting uh, topics that I do. So it's really the, the convergence of all these various activities I do. I'm very, very Amazing. glad about it. Yes. Okay. So what's on the program for today? Yeah. So we have two wonderful guests. They have both been doing research in academia and have made a transition and they are now working in the Netherlands ESI Center, which is the National Center for Development and Application of Research Software. Our guests are Lieke de Boer and Barbara Vrede, and they are going to tell us how they made a shift from doing research in the university to working at the ESI Center. My name is Lieke. I'm a community manager at the ESI Center, which means that I mostly organize programming courses for researchers to take. My name is Barbara. I've been trained as an evolutionary biologist, did a PhD, a bunch of postdocs, and then moved to the university library in Utrecht. So I was your colleague for a little bit. And uh, I joined the Netherlands eScience Center a couple of months ago, and I'm now working as a research software engineer or an eScience research engineer. That's the e-science flavor of the research software engineer. The e-science center started as a small group of researchers, basically, who developed research software. And they thought that research software could be better. So it could be more open and it could be just generally of higher quality and um, more sustainable as well. So usually what happens with a lot of research software is that people develop a package and then after the project, the research project is over, the package kind of dies, right? Um, <laughs> so these people who started the eScience Center just thought we should provide every researcher with the kind of skills to develop sustainable and open software so that not everyone is reinventing the wheel all the yeah. time. That's a very uh, recognizable problem. I think we're, it's called PhDware in some uh, areas. Exactly. And, uh, there actually is a laptop in this house where all of the stuff that I programmed during my PhD and all my little scripts and functions are. And uh, I think uh, they're, they're, they're dying slowly, minute <laughs> by minute, on that computer. Maybe, Barbara, you can tell us a little bit more about what a research software engineer is and does. Yeah, so a research software engineer is someone whose job it is to write software with and for researchers. Sometimes it's projects where the researcher has absolutely no idea how to write the software, has a great idea, but doesn't have the skills to, to make that into a, a usable and reusable um, uh, function or a reusable package. And sometimes it's projects where, you know, this is already quite advanced. It's a package that just needs this extra push. It needs, you know, documentation and it needs to have an extra nudge of quality to be able to be broadly reused. And it has a lot of that potential. 
I do like this image of like a researcher already working on a project and already having coded some stuff and et cetera. And then the research software engineer comes in and it's probably a scene like Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen. And he comes in like, what the are you doing? Mm -hmm. Let me let me please help you put some pots and pan on the fire. Or, or isn't it that dramatically? No, not at all. Well, so I, I mean, it obviously depends on the on the project, but it's not how I see that at all. So we actually had a discussion quite recently at a conference, which was about uh, research software engineers and about the quality of academic software that we produce. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that a research software engineer is not actually like a, a UFO or UFO, as we say in the Netherlands. So it's not a, a universal sort of type of job. There's no sort of definition or salary scale associated with it. But I think for that reason, we find research software engineers in every kind of place in the university. So it's not just, you know, it's it can be, you know, actually someone who's called like a data manager, who's actually mm -hmm. also being a research software engineer, or a postdoctoral researcher who's just really, really good at maintaining and writing their software. And they might actually be a research software engineer. It's just that at the moment, it's not quite recognized as such. But it's often the case that when you are writing code for a research project, that code is not your project. The question is your project. Uh, there are exceptions to this, but it is also something that I think is valuable to think of as a separate profession and a separate addition to a research team. So this connects a bit uh, to <clears throat> the question I wanted to ask from Lieke because you are a community manager and we had this sort of uh, mode of operation of an engineer goes as a sort of a first help rescuer to a to a phd or to a group with a problem but then when the help is done that's on but so what's about the community and why do you need to approach this as a community and why do you need to manage it uh, like yeah it's a, it's a good question so at the eSign Center, we basically have two main goals. So one of them is the goal that Barbara is really uh, focusing on. She and other research software engineers go to universities to help them with software development and software maintenance. Um, what the second goal of the eSign Center is, is to give researchers the skills to do this by themselves. So that could include helping them learn how to code at all, or how to become better at learning how to code. And if we would train enough people, hopefully we can also train people to train other people. So for example, we can provide universities with the kind of expertise to teach their students how to do coding so that, yeah, we, we don't have to train or, you know, the eSign Center isn't the only or one of the main uh, sources for expertise in this. So, so, so then the, the ultimate goal of the eScience Center is not to exist at all anymore. Not right? at all. No. I think... <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't like to not exist at this point. And I think there's so much work to do. Um, but of course, I mean, yeah, it would be amazing if universities and researchers at universities would have... Or may maybe it's maybe you should see it like this, maybe that research groups have a kind of different structure where there is enough, where there are enough resources for software development to really get the attention it deserves. Actually, what made 
you suitable for this job? I mean, what prepared you for your job at the eScience Center in your graduate school? Was it part of the program or was it something that sort of you yourself obtained? Um, it was something that I myself obtained. I think during my PhD, I was part of a sort of group of peers who talked a lot about things that we noticed going wrong. Um, there, there's a lot that I think we felt could be improved. So we started having kind of weekly meetings where we would discuss this kind of stuff and organizing sort of seminars for ourselves to, you know, learn more about pre-registrations and, and other kinds of um, open science practices. Um, and then after I did my PhD, I uh, went to do a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. And the data management there is, I think, really important. And I, I, I was faced with a huge longitudinal data set that just had to be restructured completely. And I, I found quite a lot of joy in like doing that actual restructuring and realizing how much that helped everyone in the group that I was researching in. So what was a side activity for you became actually the job maker. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And it was a side activity that I enjoyed a lot. So. Yeah. And now you get paid for it. So that's a double whammy. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so maybe Barbara, I'm, I'm interested to hear about your, uh, your, your track through the fields. How, how did you end up in this position? I, so I just want to feed back to the one thing that Lika just said, it's like that you're getting paid for something that you used to do. Like, I feel so lucky every day I'm getting paid to, <laughs> to, to write pro like to write code. That's perfect. That's what I used to do as a hobby. And now it's like, it's my job. It's awesome. Anyway. Um, so I, as a postdoc, actually, I really only started programming after my PhD. I did a Python course that was a week long and I sort of, that changed my life. I was hooked. Um, and I started off sort of weaving programming into my work. So I was a lab biologist. I was behind the bench. Um, but there's always there's always stuff you need to do on the computer, right? You always have some data you need to analyze or you need to look at or... So I started finding excuses to write code. Um, <laughs> one was, for example, that I had, this was before I had a proper reference manager. Actually, no, I had one, but it, what it didn't do was that uh, if you had a PDF downloaded, it didn't then link that automatically to the citation information. So I wrote a script that opened the PDF, looked for the DOI, and then started like searching for that DOI on the internet to get the reference information and put that in a database. I remember the day that I wrote that, that program that I just described, and it was just such a wonderful day. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> um, I was just, I forgot about all the time, I forgot the time, I was sitting there, I forgot to eat, I was just doing this, and it was amazing, and I was like, oh, this is, this is really fun, I need to do this more, <laughs> and so when I then moved to, then I moved to the Utrecht University Library, and I developed a course uh, together with a colleague in R, which was really useful, and it's one of the points where I realized how useful all this knowledge that I had built up just because I needed it um, and because I liked it, but how useful it was and how useful it was to, yeah, to show someone else the ropes. 
So we had this course that was a basic course and our was one day. And at some point we realized like there's so many other things that we know that we would like to teach that have nothing to do with R specifically, but are just much more broad and much more general. And so we set ourselves the challenge to develop this course that had nothing that was not language specific. So it has nothing to do with one specific programming language, but it is everything about, you know, how do you interact with a computer when you have data and you need a story to come out at the other end. <laughs> so this was a course where we taught Git. So this is a version control, a, a bit of a software for version control, and it allows you to to store all of the changes that you made in, um, in a narrative way. So every time you make a change, you say, okay, I did this and I did that. And then it allows you then to look back later and say, okay, wait, at this point in time, that's when my software worked the way I wanted it to. I want to go back there and you can, and you can even start experimenting. You say, you know, at this point, I actually want to branch off and do something else. And I want to try if that works. And if it works, I'm going to move that branch back into the main thing. And I will have a you know new feature that is developed. And at the same time, your main thing will, will remain there. So you will have that main bit of software that's still functional, that you can experiment on top of it. You can delete things, but it won't alter the main version of that software. So it allows you all, all these tricks that are really, really useful as you're playing with code. And we started teaching that. We started teaching so project management, basic project management, uh, how to write documentation, which is something that it's it's so crucial. And this is one of the things that I always find, uh, I found the most eye-opening and I always see them people, other people that is the most eye-opening about how you write good software is that a lot of the really good habits have nothing to do with technical expertise. So making a good organization, anyone can do that. Writing documentation, anyone could do that. You do not need to know any programming to do those things, yet they are fundamental and so very powerful as you are writing good software. So all of those things we sort of wrapped into this course. And at the end of that, when that was complete, I had developed programming knowledge. I had developed also a lot of knowledge around, you know, how you write good code and how you write good programs and the things because I in my courses, I'd seen like all these different academics from all these different backgrounds struggling with all these different things. So I felt like I really had a really good grasp of issues that people were dealing with. And then I was looking like, okay, I really want to do this more often because as a librarian, I was, I mean, I wrote some code and I again found excuses to put code everywhere and I did. But it was still not the main you know, job that I had. And so I was looking around, like, what can I do to do more of this? And then I applied at the eScience Center. And that was uh, fortunately successful. And I think what prepared me for that was that, you know, I learned to program, but also I'd learned all of these other things. And I thought about all of these other things um, that were around, you know, how do you write a good bit of software? Well, that's a very, uh, very nice story. Very long Barbara. story, sorry. No, uh, all pieces piece of it are, are pretty important. And I, I could imagine that in hindsight, you are both, Like and you are discovering in your path what happened. But we know that also, if you ask most PhDs that start a PhD program, they started with the intention of they will get an academic job at some point. That's why they do PhD and not go outside immediately after finishing their master. 
So, and then the, the common route that everybody agrees with us, you know, get the data, get the publication, get the good recommendation, you know, find a hot shot to give you the next postdoc and then you land safe. We know that in practice, only one in 20 or one in 30 will get there. Even among the people with nature and science, I think one in three will not uh, easily land a tenure track job. So were you aware of this, where you were doing your PhD, that you might actually need other skills which are useful for you? Or is it all in hindsight that you see, oh, these and that skills were very useful for the job I'm doing now? And what would be your advice for the people who are now doing a PhD that have to do all these things, have to program because their data depends on the program and the code they write. They have to give lectures. They have to give courses. What do you advise them to be aware of at this stage that they are now doing their PhD with the intention of maybe, you know, getting an academic job? I think during my PhD, I mean, when you start a PhD, you're just overwhelmed, I think, a little bit. Um, I did a PhD where most of the data was already collected when I started. And I mean, at the start, it's just like, okay, how am I going to tackle all of this data? I have no idea. I started with a, with a GUI clicky interface, um, doing everything. And then I think one day I wrongfully copy-pasted part of a SPSS table into another SPSS table and got some results that looked extremely promising um, <laughs> and then had to, maybe a week later, you know, first tell my first I told my supervisor about how these results looked so promising and how it was great and then had to get back to that about two weeks later with tears in my eyes saying, I think the results might not be real. <laughs> And I think that was my dream job. (laughs) Exactly. Um, My supervisor is, was, and is an extremely nice guy. So he was very understanding and said that this is all part of it and don't worry about it. But it did make me realize that, okay, if you want to create something good, whenever you're working with data, I think this is not the way to do it. The copy pasting in SPSS. So I saw the very sort of direct importance of these kind of skills then, and I made a choice to want to learn about how to do it better. I mean, my advice to anyone in any career would be to really pay attention to the things that you like to do. Yeah, and you actually talk about the leaving academia in the in your podcast that I listened to uh, called Minor Revision with That's Major right. Crossed Out. That's I really like that layouting uh, over there. Uh, and uh, I think in your latest episode called Hawk or Dove, we we'll put it in the show notes. You actually have a conversation with your co-host about leaving academia and sort of the anxiety that also comes with it, and then the release or the rejoicement when you've actually done it so you guys now work outside of academia but you work with researchers all day and it's only a minor revision so how do you look back on your academic career now from your point of view i think maybe i'm a little bit of an exception to the sort of ambitious phd student who wants to become a professor and i think i always had doubts from the beginning even when i started my phd i thought i really don't know if this is for me I mean, I enjoy playing with this data. I enjoy thinking about these questions. I enjoy the puzzle. But when I look at the actual career path and 
at sort of the maybe the social circumstances of the work. So, you know, being by yourself in an office for most of the time. I already knew that that was probably not going to be my life forever. So this this is the way I see it. Again, tell me if it is not in your view, but the way I see it, I mean, in your research, you are, of course, introduced to a community, right? A community of, I don't know, evolutionary biologists or neuroscientists, neuroimaging. There are this community. And then, of course, if you do the way the community does, you will just, you know, excel there and become very famous or very wanted. And open science is also yet another community of very different type of people, which in my view, it's much broader, right? It, you, you also see historians in our podcast, you see you know, people from other places, and that's how it spreads your vision. That's how I see it that gives you the opportunity not to only look in all the groups, which are like 20 of them in the world, to find the next postdoc, but also look outside the, the walls of the university. Is this also your observation that open science allowed you to connect to different type of people with similar interests? What is interesting sort of with this question for me to look back on is the people that were for me instrumental in um, in teaching me some of these new skills, but also introducing me to uh, new tools that were out there, uh, Figshare when it started, um, in general, just GitHub, like, what is that? How does that work? How do you use it? That now are open science advocates? Mm -hmm. At the time, I don't think it had that name, or at least not that I was aware of. It was a community, but it was not a community with a name like that. So there was not a conference or a, a group. <laughs> there was no church yet. But I, I really loved Beautiful. Thank you very much. And uh, well, hopefully we'll see you again on the Road to Open Science podcast. But for now, thanks a lot. Thank you. So, Siko, what do you think about the conversation we had with Lika and Barbara? Well, it fits in the general experience that I have with people from the eScience Center that I had previously, and also with research software engineers and, and the likes. They sound so happy, man. Yeah, I mean, you are not in the confines of this predefined path to success of becoming a professor, and they are still connected to research. They do the research, and they do the work they really like to do. Yeah, that and sounds like the best of both worlds. <laughs> exactly. So I'm very happy for them, but I'm very happy that also this route is uh, opening up, and so more people can do research without all the other downsides. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, that's it for today, then. Yes. See you next time. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcast. The Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date. Yeah, but yeah. maybe we should do it one more time. So just all say three, two, one, and then clap your hands. Yeah. Okay. 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 Three. Three, two, two one. one. Very unsynchronized. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded good in my. Uh...